Hello, I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy from Keshet Podcast, Two Jews on the News. I want to say Two Jews on the Move, Jonathan, because that is what I have been doing this week. It's what you've been. I've certainly not been on the move. I've been rooted to the spot for reasons that will become clear. Why are you on the move? So I have moved. I mean, it's more a present progressive. Like I am moving. It's like a process that is taking forever. And I mean, it's a nightmare. There's no way to like circumvent uh, this. I've been trying to kind of convince myself, right? Like saying, you know, as Neanderthals, just to connect to last week's uh, conversation, as Neanderthals, we had to move from place to place and from cave to cave. And you just know that even then the cable guy took two weeks to come and connect you to cable in your cave. But at least, you know, we're evolutionary wired to move. So that's fine. As as Jews, we're like, we're wandering. We know how to do this. We've been doing it for so, so long. So why is it so damn hard to do this. So I'm in an exhausted existence. That was my rant. So you, you think after our 2,000 years at least, we would be better at house moving, I, but no. No, no. And then now you're in, the, I, mean, I am in the stage of like, out of 250 boxes, like 130 have been opened. So like, I, I don't know where anything is. But 128 of those are books, Yoni. Uh, no, they're not. But I mean, thank you. But I think all of my socks and my spoons are in those Boxes that have two. not been, em- <laughs> and I'm like, and so I'm sitting here in my green official like jacket, fancy jacket, but like my pink panther pajama pants. This is too much information, <laughs> I know, but this is this is uh, where we are, and I, I just have to kind of say that I guess the relatively the only fun part, if there's a fun part in this whole thing, is the pre-packing. Uh, segment where you kind of have to sift through all of your things and find like these not you- fun. Not fun. That well, traumatizes me, that thought. Because, well, you because know, I because see your library, so I realize this, yes. We do this conversation by Zoom, and you see the background of just this one room. Forget the whole house, which is, you know, the study, the office that I work in, piled high with books and files and boxes. The idea <laughs> of having to go through it. I think they always say that second only to divorce, moving house is the great and, and sometimes what you just mentioned, I mean, moving can cause what you just mentioned. They're all connected, these stressful life events. They can be a cause uh, and effect. Now, but what listeners are going to want to know, I suspect, is we know that you live in Tel Aviv. Are you moving away from Tel Aviv? No, I'm moving like very, very near my uh, um, my former house, which is becoming a demolition uh, site. But uh, but I was going to say that actually just, I mean, I, I know that I'm not going to be convincing you with this argument, but just sifting through even like old pictures and old letters could be uh, fun. I mean, I just kind of stumbled upon, you know, pictures of my dad after he made Aliyah living in the kibbutz when he was 16. So that was fun. And then I stumbled on like my bad bangs period, uh, which led to... We didn't say bangs uh, here, remember. That's fringe, we would say. So they were bad. Anyway, they were bad. Okay. (laughs) And that led to like bad boyfriend um, uh, part and, you know, all kinds of things. And then I found a MAGA hat. Uh, Make America great again. Yes, and I walked over to the man I married, and I asked him, you know, I I, I assume you might know this tone, Jonathan. It's kind of inquisitive, but a little bit accusatory. And you're like, where did you get this? And he said, you bought it for me. (laughs) You got it for (laughs) me in the Cleveland RNC convention. So, yeah, I have a pension. Which I was at as well. This is before we knew each other properly. How could you not spot an Israeli girl among all those 
the millions of people I should have know. spotted from the Israeli woman queuing up at the Trump <laughs> merchandise stall to buy souvenir Yelling at the guy, hat. give me more MAGA hats. That was That me. should have been a clue. So moving me. is very relevant because we are actually going to be talking about housing in Tel Aviv. I'm not going to do the incredibly intrusive thing that I think Jews in London would do, which is to ask you how much you are paying for your new house. I will not do that. But how much housing costs... Um, is going to be a topic because we has we have as our guest on the podcast this week a brig-brained economist and economics commentator Guy Rolnick of the Mark and Hire. So we'll be talking to him later. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got lots um, on the agenda. But no, you are on the move, and I'm very much rooted. Yes, I was going to gonna, after talking about myself for like five minutes, tell me how you're doing. Well, I'm doing well. I, 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 there was a brief period in between editions of Unholy where if you had spoken with me, you'd have heard me sounding elated, if not ecstatic, because I have delivered um, the second and almost final draft of a book that I've been working on for a very, very long time. Well, it feels a very long time. I mean, I've been writing it more or less since the birth of Unholy. Um, I started the actual writing in february but which do you year. love more but i've been working on it for a whole chunk of um 2020 as well and my life has been completely kind of immersed in this book project and so there was this elation as delivering it as you speak to me now i'm now doing little fine tuning edits so i'm less ecsta ecstatic and elated but there was a brief beautiful sort of 72 hours of relief i was gonna say i think it lasted for five minutes but no um because of course 11 books is not enough uh, so tell us about your 12th book. Tell, tell me a little bit. Of what, <laughs> now we can tell the world a little about what it's about. Well, we can tell. I've been very sort of guarded about it and private about it, but it is, it's a nonfiction book. So it's under my own name. It's not under my alter ego, Sam Bourne, uh, who writes the novels in this household. It is instead by me and it is nonfiction. Uh, it is going to be called The Escape Artist. And it is the life of the first and one of only four Jews who ever broke out of Auschwitz. And I know that some people are wary of Auschwitz stories because there have been quite a few of them. I think, and you know, and in a way I shared some of that wariness, but this one absolutely broke through to me. And it's a story I've carried around with me for a long time, since I was 19 years old, wow. in fact, when I saw the subject of this book in Claude Landsman's film, Shoah. His name is Rudolf Verber, and it struck me then as just the most extraordinary story. And it came sort of roaring back into my mind in the last two or three years because of what he then did when he got out, which is he, and the motive for getting out was very much to tell the world what was happening in Auschwitz. And he was obsessed by the idea of facts and truth and how important that was. I'm not going to ask you to like tell everything, obviously, but when did he get out? Can, can you... He he uh, made his escape, and get this, um, on the, the the escape took almost three days for a complicated reason, which the book explains, but it began on April the 7th, 1944. Wow. And on a before I had read this, I sort of on a something like an instinct, I had a little look on the calendar, and sure enough, the night he broke for freedom was the first night of Pesach. Wow. It was the Seder night. Now he didn't know, know that. He and the other man, there were two of them, Fred Wetzler and uh, Rudolf Verber, escaped, um, and they he himself Verber didn't know for fifty years that that had actually been the Seder night, the night where Jews commemorate 
escaping bondage and slavery and seeking freedom. That was the night he began his escape from Auschwitz. And this is extraordinary because you say that you stumbled upon this when you were 19 and just the pace of, you know, this living in your head for a long time and finally writing. I mean, I come from a, you know, my profession is like 60 minutes, is 60 seconds is a long time. <laughs> this has been like brewing for such a long time. Yeah, in, in, in a way, I'd, I'd always sort of filed it where my head as being the most amazing story and... I think, you know, with your permission, we'll talk about it more when the book actually comes out. But the Which it, is it, when? You know, Can you tell us I'd when it's coming in, out? Well, next summer. Summer 2022 in Britain and uh, autumn 2022 in the United States. Okay, by then uh, I will have found all of my socks and spoons, for sure. By then. No, I think you'll still be, have a few boxes that <laughs> never, ever get unloaded. Anyway, so that's been my life. Um, immersed in the book and you've been immersed in moving. So we have had between us quite a sort of uh, dramatic last few days. Sure. Nevertheless, uh, and, and I apologise in advance because I am so immersed that I am almost sort of slightly living in 1944 and obsessed by it. But I thought something caught my eye that I thought you and I would talk about this week because, uh, and, you know, touching on the similar subject. And two, it was two things that happened in the same week. The first was a survey that showed half of Britons do not know that six million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust, that they thought at least a, uh, less than a quarter thought that two million or fewer were killed. Um, the, and just a deep level of ignorance uh, about, the, um, about the whole period. Didn't, you know, asked about the kinder transport, 76%. So they did not know what that was and so on. And there are studies like that in the United States often as well, where they ask people to name a single concentration camp and people just can't. And it came in the same week that the education, the new education secretary in this country, uh, Nadim Zahawi, said that he thought every... Uh, British school students should travel to Auschwitz to better understand the Holocaust and anti-Semitism. So it's not just me. This is something that people are thinking about in quite a major way this week. And so I thought that would be, it'd be interesting to hear what you think about that, because you're in a country where obviously most people do know about these events. Of course. I mean, in, uh, in Israel, you know, Shoah education, Holocaust education starts very, very early in Holocaust Memorial Day, not the international one, uh, January 27th, but the one uh, we commemorate in Israel in May. Um, there's a sire and their memorial ceremonies. They talk with children from very early, from a very early age, like first grade, obviously a very uh, watered down version of the story, but still it's something very, very front and center in Israel's uh, education. Obviously also tours, uh, teenager taking, uh, teenagers taking tours to Auschwitz, something that um, the uh, government here subsidizes at the height of it. There were 50,000 kids going every year. Uh, this is at the age of 17 and 18. Of course, it's something very prominent here. Um, it, it stopped when COVID was uh, on the rise and now is returning. I have to say, though, that uh, in the margins, you hear more and more uh, principals at schools kind of concerned about this whole uh, phenomenon. Now that you're mentioning the uh, the discussion in, in the UK, I think it's important. Uh, what a lot of principals are, being, are, are saying is that, um, actually, I don't know if there are a lot, but there are these voices that they're saying, basically, the kids that age are not are ill-prepared to see uh, the horrors up close. Um, there have also been certain incidents, you know, obviously kids that age uh, being without their parents, some of them see it as a license to, like, go binge drinking and partying, which is not exactly, let's say, the original uh, um, intentions of the trip. And, of course, today the issue very much in Israel is how much 
with, with the Polish government who, if not actually is denying history, was definitely distorting it beyond recognition. How much do you want to subsidize those kinds of tours? Um, that's it. What, what age are the Israeli kids who go on? The, 17 on and 18. It's either 11th okay. grade or 12th grade. So that's... So, so it's interesting because here there is a really laudable, uh, wonderful organization called the Holocaust Education Trust, which sends over two people, the aim is to two students from every school in the country, but just two of roughly that age. And the idea is that they come back and then serve as ambassadors. They will, they're obliged for the, in return for the trip to do a talk to their fellow students and to, uh, to raise awareness in their communities and so on. Uh, absolutely admirable initiative and maybe more realistic to go for two from every school because often the one that's sort of self-selecting, so they get the two who are kind of focused and committed rather than Nadim Zahawi's idea of having the whole student body literally everybody go nevertheless i have some ambivalence about all of this and i'm interested to know what you think about it well you know i i i think the the underlying question that that really we should ask ourselves and it's a sad one and it's a tragic one but we need to ask it is what happens when we live in a world where there won't be a first person account anymore being able to tell this story uh, live right to people so what do we do then do we continue to take these tours? Do we think about the way that we do it? Do we think uh, maybe uh, 16 or 17 or even 18 um, is, I, I hes as hesitate to say this, maybe too early an age? Um, and how do you actually go about, is it only tours uh, to death camps and concentration camps? Do you do other things? Do you go to museums? Do you maybe have a class, every class adopt a community that vanished in the Holocaust? There are all kinds of things that you should be doing, and not only in Israel, uh, to focus to focus on this and to not have it disappear. I really like some of those ideas. I think that the idea of adopting a community is great. And actually, in credit to the people, with credit to the people who do do these initiatives, I think some of them increasingly do focus on the world that was lost rather than just on the kind of process of yeah. um, killing. Now, the reason why I said I'm a bit ambivalent about it is partly because I did myself go on one of those trips age 20, um, one of those big trips organized by, you know, Jewish youth movements from around the world. And it was half and half, actually. It was, you know, half Israeli, half diaspora um, people on it. And it was quite an interesting gap. Between, so I had two feelings about it. The first was I felt too young. Even at the time, age 20, I just felt unable to absorb the sheer moment and scale of experiencing it. And I remember thinking, I wish I had done this you know, when I was ancient, like 50 or something, you know, I'm now well past that mark. Um, but I'm thinking it's the sort of thing you do towards, I remember thinking then, the end of your life rather than the beginning. But, you know, when you've seen a lot of life is when you should go, is what I felt at the time. And I then didn't go back for many, many years, not until professionally as a, as a you know, reporter for The Guardian, I went back for the 70th anniversary of the liberation. So, you know, six or seven years ago. But then the other... Um, so that was one part of it. And the other part of it, was I was just going to say about ambivalence, was I, I did have a bit of a problem, frankly, with how some of my Israeli counterparts did respond to being there. What do you mean? Well, they there was a group of them who went with the Israeli flag draped over their shoulders mm -hmm. uh, as they walked around the site. And at the time, it struck me as being kind of triumphalist. It was sort of, look, we defied Hitler and those who would have killed us. We are back we're here, we're strong. I think a few of them were sort of singing anthems and stuff. It just wasn't what I felt at the time. I, I couldn't focus on the fact that Hitler didn't 
eradicate every last Jew in the world. I was focused on how many were killed rather than, you know, the fact that we didn't entirely uh, vanish from the face of the earth. So I felt there was a sort, I I just didn't feel triumphalist. I felt sad and I wasn't in any mood to sort of Mm. be clothed in a, and draped in a flag or singing a song. So that was where I was coming from. I can actually understand the draped in a flag uh, um, moment uh, as as an Israeli. Um, I can understand that way of dealing with this and saying, you know, uh, we're here. Um, but I, 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 the counter argument I would ask is, does it, does the fact that it's an organized trip um, and, and the fact that you get a lot of kids doing it, right? It's like 50,000 again at the height of it. Uh, uh, is that a good thing or not? Is it, is the, you know, A, they see it, um, right? Uh, they're witnessing it and that's important. But as you say, you felt at 20 that you were too young. My mother would not allow me to go when I was 17. She said, you're too young for this. You can't see this right now at your uh, stage in life. And I thank her for it, by the way, because I think I was too young. Um, and, you know, Martha Gellhorn, who was a war correspondent, and she saw Dachau just as it was being liberated, uh, actually the only woman war correspondent who did. And she said, I suffered a severe concussion that day. Uh, and I never mm. recovered. So I think it's it's important that when we do it, we think very deeply about how to do it, uh, and not not only about you know checking the box. Yeah, no, I think that's totally um, totally right. And also, look, if the alternative is not going at all and not discussing it and not being aware of it, then it's much much better that people go. Just last thing I was going to say on it, I now feel in retrospect very privileged that I went when I went, even though at the time it felt too young. Mm-hmm. It was so empty. In 1987, I went. It was still behind the Iron Curtain, still communist-run wow. Poland. And the site was, uh, I mean, nothing like the way it is now, where it is a kind of curated museum exhibition space with a parking lot for bus tours and coaches it was derelict and abandoned and empty and you could just walk across these vast uh, empty silent places and i felt able to really sort of connect with the site as as a you know in my imagination closer to how it was then and it's very hard to do that now when you go there it requires much more leap of the imagination we can talk about this quite a lot and i suspect we will um as i bore you and everyone else rigid with the launch of my book when it comes next summer um but we should talk about the here and now a little more and our special guest Indeed. So um, we wanted, as you said, we wanted to talk um, not only about housing prices, but about prices in general under the um, question, why is Israel so incredibly expensive? Um, And also talk about the U.S. in in comparison. I think that it's an interesting coincidence that the Israeli budget passed the day the infrastructure bill passed the exact same day. So we uh, wanted to talk to uh, Guy Rolnick, who's a professor of strategic management in the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and the founder of Israel's leading business newspaper, The Marker, probably one of the most influential uh, economics columnists in Israel, also a recipient of the Sokolov Lifetime Achievement uh, Award, really a fierce critic of uh, Israel's oligarchs and tycoons. And he's the person uh, to talk to about these issues. Uh, So um, we're very glad to have you, Guy. Thank you for having me. Guy, I'm going to start as the sort of outsider on all of this and go right in there with something that is the one thing that people who do not live in Israel but visit it say every time they go, and particularly when they come back 
with their wallets much lighter, which is, what is the deal with Israel and how come it's so expensive? <laughs> well, Israel is indeed very uh, uh, expensive. Uh, the cost of living in Israel starts with the uh, ridiculous prices of real estate in Israel. Then it moves to restaurants in Israel that are expensive and the food in Israel that is uh, uh, expensive. And I think that's enough to get tourists to be very much, uh, you know, disappointed with that part of, uh, of their visit to, to Israel. Yes, this is real numbers. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is just a this is a statistic from 2019, so I'm sure it got worse. But the Central Bureau of Statistics here said you'd need to buy an average apartment with an average paycheck. You'd need 153 paychecks, which means essentially 12 years. I mean, this is really this is insane. Uh, and the question is, you know, we're, we're a country living basically on a metaphorical metaphoric volcano. Why is it so expensive to live here? So first of all, yes, this, these are the numbers. So the ratio between the median cost of an apartment in Israel and the uh, median uh, salary is probably the highest in the world today. The Israel rise or bubble of uh, real estate prices uh, started like 12 years ago. And now we are probably uh, the, faring worse when it comes to uh, the ability to buy a, an apartment. I believe that a, a five-bedroom or four-bedroom apartment in Tel Aviv is something like $2 million today. So Tel Aviv prices are not very far from London and, uh, and from Manhattan. I'm... I, I want to zoom out for a second because I think that it, it's important to say that you're one of the first people in Israel to say basically that the lines that define us are not, you know, what we've thought all these years. It's not left and right, and it's not religious and secular, and it's not even the ethnic lines. It's about money, and it's about power. And the people who have money and power, you know, don't really care that we know what they're doing, so they like the fact that we're dealing with and everything else. Am I accurately phrasing what, what you've been saying in general? Uh, Israeli politics stopped, I don't know where to, if it's 10 years ago or 15 years ago, uh, stopped being about the, uh, you know, the Palestinian issues and the reign of Netanyahu uh, masked this change because he was such a polarizing uh, uh, figure. But now actually that Netanyahu is gone, it's clear that the wedge in Israeli electorate is not the Palestinian issue or the right and left or the, or I don't know, this two-state uh, uh, solution. For decades, politicians in the center and the left in Israel told their base that Israeli economic problems and challenges are rooted in the uh, occupation or the peace process. Mm -hmm. That wasn't true, of course. The occupation is a huge humanitarian, cultural, and societal problem. It's not an economic pro uh, one. But now it's clear that it has little influence on the economics of uh, Israel and the economic policies of Israel. It does have little influence, Guy. I mean, obviously, prioritizing the settlements, defense budget. I mean, that all has 
to have some effect. No, on not not really, on because it is nothing to do with the uh, occupation. This has to do with the fact that this is the most powerful special interest group in Israel, the military. Now you need. Take a look at the last uh, budget that was passed uh, two uh, uh, weeks ago. So we have Bennett and Horowitz, Yamina and Labour. These parties told us for years that their politics and, and policies uh, in economics are so different. And you can see that they found it very easy to uh, reconcile all their differences. The debate on the budget in the last months or two months was minimal. And actually, the only people that were uh, screaming were some special interests that were uh, slapped with reforms, like introducing a, a competition in, uh, in cosmetics or introduction of a soda tax. But here's uh, the thing I don't completely get about what you're saying there, is you would think that if there was this sort of suffocating or, or suppressing of the economic argument that you get in most countries because everyone has to focus instead on the security question, you would think that now that there isn't really much argument anymore about two states and occupation, that issue is on the, in the deep freeze, you would think it would release this big left-right socialism, capitalism argument in Israel. The two sides would engage now in class conflict because actually they no longer got the smothering consensus over security and yet we've got a government that is not going to deal with the security question because they all disagree too much but you're saying they're not even having the big class economic argument either so how does that work wow this is a fantastic question and you really nailed it on the uh, right that's uh, spot on so first of all i think that we're starting to see in the last uh, few weeks uh bubbling of this debate of right and left on the economic uh, uh, side. The only reason that it's not happening in a big way as it is happening uh, across the world is that we were so occupied in the last five years with Bibi and anti-Bibi that that sucked all the oxygens from the room. Now, interestingly enough, Bibi is out of office now, I don't know, four months, and still people got so much addicted to the discourse of, I'm, I'm t- when I say people, I mean, you know, you know, the chattering class, the journalists, you know, politicians everywhere, and they still want to, this is what they want to do. They want to talk about uh, Netanyahu. Going back to a question, well, I think that that may change. Now, you know, people on the, on the center and on the left still fear that Netanyahu will come back, okay? Like in the U.S., uh, we fear that Trump is going to make a, a comeback. So there is this feeling that, you know, we may not like a lot of things that happening with the current government. I'm, I'm talking about people in the, in the center and the left. But the most important thing is that we got rid of Netanyahu because Netanyahu really was so toxic then we are willing to uh, live with a lot of things that we don't like about this current uh, government. If the BB-anti-BB debate will start to uh, subside or wane, we might uh, start to see the same debate that we're seeing uh, in the United States or in the UK or in many other democratic market economy in the West. I I have one more thought, which is I'm just imagining the listener to Unholy who is thinking about being a foreign investor in Israel, is it your sense that Israel is more attractive to foreign investors 
now, partly because of the stuff you were talking about earlier, which is about the politics that I, I don't know because I don't, you know, I'm not in, don't move in those circles. But people who represent big funds with billions of dollars to move and they're looking where to move, I'm guessing that a country that has a leader who's kind of just on the news all the time and in your face is a bit less appealing than somewhere that is just quietly getting on with it. And therefore, I'm wondering if a Naftali Bennett-led Israel, which is basically not in the news, is going to be more attractive to foreign investment than the Israel where it was, you know, a constant 24-hour, 24-7 psychodrama with Netanyahu at the top. So I spent most of my uh, life in the business sector, in, in financial uh, journalism, and now, uh, you know, I'm professor of uh, strategic management at the business school of uh, uh, Chicago. So I talk with business people and with finance people all the time. And I can say 99% of the time, they don't care about Netanyahu or Bennett, and they don't see any difference. Israel's high tech is much bigger than any of those uh, figures. Uh, unlike, you know, what Net Netanyahu wanted to portray himself as if he's responsible for the success of the Heidegger visual, this is BS, nor is uh, Naftali Bennett. Uh, Israel today is a technology powerhouse. There is an amazing ecosystem now in Israel for investments in uh, technology. And, you know, when you look, when you look at investments uh, in Israel, most of the investments are in technology and in exports. The, the investments that are in the local markets are, is insignificant and not important. And uh, again, I don't see much difference between Bennett and uh, Netanyahu. But, you know, since I'm not an expert on the diplomatic side and how do how Israel is viewed in the, in the diplomatic circles around the world. I, so I would quote uh, Gidon Rachman, the chief foreign uh, affair uh, commentator of the uh, Financial Times. Rachman visited Israel, I think, three or four weeks ago. And when he came back, he more or less uh, wrote in the FT that the interest of the West in the Palestinian issue is waning very fast, almost disappearing. And he quoted a diplomat saying that 15 years ago, diplomacy with Israel was 80% Palestinian, 20% other things. Now it's 20% Palestinian, 80% other things. And when it comes to the uh, uh, investments in economics, it's probably Palestinians are 1% uh, of, the, of the story. And Bibi is also, I don't know, 2% of the uh, story. Israel is a rich country. We carry a huge uh, trade balance surplus and a big current account uh, surplus. Israel is awash with foreign investments, with dollars, and this is, of course, why the shekel is one of the strongest currencies in the world. So no, the answer is I don't foresee any real change in the investment sentiments in Israel because of uh, Naftali uh, Bennett. You know, I do hope that Netanyahu won't come back. But uh, on, on the economic front, I don't think that if Netanyahu comes back, it will have any uh, significant uh, detrimental or positive influence on the economy. Well, at least I'm convinced that we're in the wrong profession and we should have moved into high tech many years ago. <laughs> That's true. Um, yeah. guy... You should realize that, Yoni? Come on. <laughs> we, you've been doing that for a while from this podcast. <laughs> um, Guy, thank you so much. It was such an eye-opener and we, we really love talking to you. We've been waiting to do it for a while and we finally found an excuse and so we're so glad 
uh, to talk to you today. Thank you for having me. So Guy Rolnick, world authority on Israel and its economy and money, and talking of money as we move. You want to give me some? Chutzpah. You wanted to give me some money? No, and actually not. I, mean, I think um, I know you've probably raided the bank for the house move, <laughs> but no, I'm not thinking that. I'm thinking about the richest man in the world, mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos, um, for our Chutzpah of the Week award, and this is beautifully double facing because I think. On one level, he could get the award, and on the other level, the people who were annoyed with him could also get the award. It's one of these beautiful ones. So the story is that Jeff Bezos was attending a charity gala for the Baby to Baby charity. I don't know much about uh, that organization, but he was there at their big fundraising gala in L.A., and he donated $500,000 which is obviously a colossal amount of money for any charity. But when he gave it, there was an audible groan <laughs> in the room that it wasn't enough, mm. that it wasn't enough money. People pointing out that he is estimated to make around $150,000 per minute. So this was only five minutes worth of, of income that he was giving away. And in a way, of course, it's true. It kind of is a chutzpah for Jeff Bezos to only give half a million because you're so rich. But it's also an amazing chutzpah of the charity <laughs> organisers and their guests to boo a guy who gives half a million. And this is the season, November, uh, of all the big Jewish charities that hold their fundraising events. And there is such fantastic sort of politics around who, who gives and how much people give and, you know, the expectation and the sort of peer group pressure. So I just sort of... You know, there isn't an organization that I know of that could relate to turning its nose up at $500,000. But just the kind of human politics around who gives what and the expectation that rich people really should give a huge amount. I kind of like You this know story. what's interesting about it? You stumble, you'll just find like a 10 pound note in your pocket is like Jeff Bezos finding $500,000 in his pocket. It's the same thing. Um, so I want to I go through um, some, I was going to get to Mensch, but I have to go through two mentionettes, if that's okay with you, like very briefly. Uh, I like um, that, yeah, Okay, so just a shout out to VP uh, Kamala, ha Kamala Harris, who for the first time in the vice president uh, history, put a place in mezuzah on the doorpost of the vice president's residence, which I think is nice. Um, Very nice. And the other shout out to... Um, we are That's because she has a Jewish husband, Yes, right? the second gentleman, the uh, Doug Emhoff. Uh, and... Very, very um, nice. And the second shout-out would be to Helen Mirren in the uh, Guy Nativ biopic called Golda. I don't know if you saw, there's like a first, he's an Israeli Oscar winner, by the way, um, like a first image from that film, and it's uncanny. You kind of have to double-take and remind yourself that this is actually Helen Mirren. It is an unbelievable picture because you would never think that Helen Mirren has any resemblance at all to Golda Meir, and yet, look at the picture. I think we should put a link in our show notes so you can see. Indeed. Okay, so after the if we were talking about films, I uh, it's a stretch, but just bear with me. Uh, one of my favorite films of all time is celebrating 45 years. It's Network, and it came out November 1976. The great Patty Chayefsky, who wrote it, uh, a brilliant movie. I'll just remind anyone who hasn't seen it. Anchorman, who goes slightly crazy. I wonder why I relate to this. Uh, and for <laughs> once, you know, I, he's been exploited by. This is, 
you know, he's been exploited by tele- television network for ratings. It's a comment about television and etc. But also written as a complete crazy satire, uh, over the top satire, really. Um, and today kind of looks like a documentary. And I really wish we could have asked Patty Chayefsky, who is my mensch for this uh, relevant discussion. You know, how would you? How did you know? Sadly, he passed away um, many, many years ago, way too early uh, in 1981. But really, it's just a fantastic film. And of course, we all remember I'm as mad as hell and I can't, I'm not going to take it anymore. But there are just so many amazing lines, including William Holden telling Faye Dunaway, you are television incarnate, which is something I think a lot. Aspire to. But it's perfect. Um, and no, I um, love Network, and I haven't seen it for many years, and this inspires me to go back and see it again. I did actually see the stage adaptation of it in the National Theatre, Brian Cranston in the Peter Finch role. And I, have to, I didn't love it as much as I was expecting to. Um, you know, I, I thought I would love it. And um, so it makes me want to get back to the film. I, I mean, people at the time were saying, of course, this film is so important because in a way it anticipates Fox News, Donald Trump, Infotainment, yes. Just, and it's all there, isn't it? It's all there. It is just a brilliant, uh, brilliant film uh, that I would recommend watching. Um, and we are winding up our eclectic conversation, Jonathan, I would I, say. I think we are. <laughs> I'm sure you've got the DVD of Network in box number 184. <laughs> but I forgot I the DVD. I don't have a DVD anymore. So it's <laughs> like I have, uh, never mind. I'll just go and, you know, feel sorry for myself for the rest of Shabbat. And uh we hope that you uh, have a better Shabbat than mine. And I will say thank yous. We can't forget that. I can't forget that in box. So it's Leo Friedman, our EP, and Rom Atik, Dani Nudelman, Omer Primat, and Iradesh for original music. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, do give us a review. Ratings are nice. Reviews are even nicer, especially if they're warm and positive, as most of them have been. Tell your friends. We're on Instagram, at 2Jews. No digits or numerals, just at 2Jews in words. And we will be back with you next week. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.